thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. The day has passed when armies on the ground or navies on the sea can be the arbiter of a nation's destiny in war, said Brigadier General Billy Mitchell in 1918. Continuing, the main power of defense and the power of initiative against an enemy has passed to the air. Maybe so, but more than two-thirds of the Earth's surface is covered by water. Most of our trade moves by sea and a great deal of our warfare is determined by our control of the seas, particularly from above. This week on the show, we skip the announcements and listener questions and get straight into an exhaustive look at the history, hardware, and humans involved in the last century's struggle between aircraft and surface and subsurface naval vessels. That's right, it's all about maritime patrol here on episode 150 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. All right, today on the show, we are talking maritime patrol, the history, the hardware, and the people. Here to help me do that is retired United States Navy Captain Sean Liebman. Leeds, welcome to the Maritime Pilot, I mean, the uh, Fighter Pilot Podcast. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jello. It's uh, exciting to have the opportunity to add this dimension to your body of work, which I've really enjoyed getting to know. Well, I appreciate that. And we just got to know each other here a few minutes ago. Big shout out to Tom, who introduced us. He gave me a ride home from the airport one day, and we got to talking about the podcast. He was, I think, a P3 guy. But at any rate, it's good to have you on the show, Leeds. And this, by the way, has been a very in-demand topic. I've had people say, when are you going to do the P3? When are you going to do the P8? And I keep telling them, I think we'll just do all of Maritime Patrol. And we could talk about both of those because I think you have some time in both of those. Yeah? That's a fact. And you know, Jello, they don't make movies about P3s. I think the last time a P3 appeared on the big screen was in The Hunt for Red October back in like 1985 or 1986. And it just what, flew by and dropped a sonar buoy or a torpedo or something? Yeah, a rather cameo appearance despite its central <laughs> role in anti-submarine warfare in the movie. Well, all right, then Leeds, this is your chance to make this community shine. And from what little I know about your pedigree, I think you're going to be able to do that. But why don't you share that with everyone? Where are you from? Where's your alma mater? And give us some quick highlights on your 25-year career, you told me. Yeah, thanks, Jello. I was born and raised in Kimball, Minnesota, a town of 650 people out in corn country in central Minnesota, which is not exactly the prime spawning grounds for U.S. Navy talent. But somehow, a little bit coincidentally, during high school, I became interested in attending the Naval Academy to earn a free engineering degree. Uh, and I was accepted and showed up on July 1st for plebe summer. And it took me about all of six hours to realize that the Naval Academy is about a lot more than just a free engineering degree. You know, and so I'd raised in Minnesota, no military background to speak of my family other than a World War II veteran grandfather and no exposure to the military. There's no Air Force or Navy bases in central Minnesota. And so I really didn't have a concept of what I wanted to do in the Navy. 
over the course of my time in Annapolis, you're exposed to a variety of different things. And in the summer before my senior year at Annapolis, I went on a aviation training cruise with an F-18 squadron based out of Cecil Field, Florida at that time. The squadron embarked aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln, which was the fleet's newest aircraft carrier at that point. And I got a great taste in naval aviation that made it clear that that's what I wanted to do going forward in the Navy afterwards. You know, I didn't have 20-20 eyesight, which meant I couldn't be a pilot, but that wasn't a barrier to me whatsoever. I was happy to serve as a naval flight officer or an NFO or what some people might say in naval aviation, the guy in the back, if you will. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I really wanted to be a bombardier navigator on A6 intruders. I'd read the book Flight of the Intruder and, of course, seen the movie that came out shortly after based on the success of the book. And it was a great mission for NFOs. You sat side by side alongside the pilot, really integrated into the strike mission. And I set my goal on that. And so graduated from Annapolis in 1991 and went down to Pensacola and did great flight training, put in my dream sheet of what platforms I wanted to fly. And of course, A6s is at the top of it and P3s are somewhere near the bottom of it. And when that fateful day came around and the list is posted in the public domain and you walk up to the chalkboard, there it says Leadman P3s. I can't describe the level of despair and dejection that I felt when I experienced that. You set your dreams on a certain path, and then that path doesn't pan out for you. Mm-hmm. And frankly, at that point, I started making plans for what I was going to do is after I got out of the Navy, which I had a fairly short window that I was envisioning. Hmm. And then I went on to join my first squadron in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, P3 squadron, VP45, and my perspective changed almost overnight. I joined the squadron on a Friday. On Tuesday, my first flight in the squadron was a transatlantic repositioning flight from Jacksonville, Florida to Sigonella, Sicily, done in two legs, but you know, no overnights. And then my second flight in the squadron found us flying out of Sicily up into the Adriatic Ocean, or the Adriatic Sea, I should say, carrying two Mark 46 torpedoes in the bomb bay of that P-3 and two Mark 20 Rockeye cluster bombs on the wings as we were enforcing the United Nations embargo on the former Yugoslavia, which had disintegrated after the Soviet Union disintegrated, basically. I realized right then and there that this was a community that I could have a lot of fun in and enjoy serving in down the road. And so I stayed and did it for another 25 years. So I went on to command a P3 squadron, the Fighting Tigers of VP8 back in 2009 and 2010, and then transitioned to fly the P8 Poseidon, which is the next generation maritime patrol aircraft for the Navy, went through a full transition syllabus as a captain, and then ascended to command of the Patrol and Reconnaissance Wing in Jacksonville, Florida, which at that point was in the executing the early days of the U.S. Navy's transition from the P-3 to the P-8. One squadron had already transitioned when I took command as the wing commander, and three more squadrons transitioned and went on their first deployment over the course of my tenure as the wing commander, which was an exciting time, obviously, for air crewmen to learn the new platform, learn and employ the new platform, be innovative with it, for maintainers to transition from 1950s era technology that had been designed on a slide rule to a modern airplane with modern propulsion, modern avionics, and modern digital flight controls. And it was really an incredibly exciting time. So I uh, had a rewarding time as the wing commander down in Jacksonville and ultimately decided to retire from the Navy in 2016, which I did. And today happens to be the fifth anniversary of my work employment with the Boeing Company where I work international business development, selling P-8, KC-46, and E-7 aircraft. You know, and I want to sort of wrap that story up, Jello, with a note for your younger listeners out there. 
young men and women who are pondering a career in aviation, or I should say specifically military aviation. You know, as you think back about my dream to be an A6BN, and then my experience as a P3 aviator, and I was really fortunate during my time in the Navy while serving as an aide to a carrier strike group commander, I got to fly in a bunch of different naval aircraft, F-14s, S-3s, EA-6Bs off the boat, SH-3s, SH-60s, MH-60 Romeos off the back of frigates and destroyers. And over the course of observing each of those communities, which is different to be clear, Mm -hmm. I came to realize I could have had fun in any of those communities. (laughs) And I tell young men and women that who are seeking a career in military aviation, you should have a dream. I want to be a fighter pilot, or I want to be a tanker pilot, or I want to be a maritime patrol pilot. But Mick Jagger once said, you can't always get what you want. (laughs) And you need to be prepared for those alternate paths. And I'm telling you, based on my experience in my alternate path, and the path that I witnessed by spending 25 years around those other communities in naval aviation, it would have been a privilege to serve in any of those communities. Well, I'm so glad you said that, Leeds, because we do have the attention of many young people who aspire to be military aviators. And we hear from some of them early in the process, oh, what if I don't get jets? I'm like, well, you blossom or you're planted. I mean, I don't know. You can call it Darwin. You can call it God, whatever you want. I mean, there's a purpose, I think, for everyone out there, and you're going to end up where you're supposed to be. Hard to say that sometimes, but yeah, I'm glad you did because I think people should give it their all and then be happy with their results as long as they did give it their all, right? If they gave it a half effort, then well, then that's a different story. But if you give it your best effort and you end up in whatever, then go blossom because like you said, I think you can. And we've had that many times on the show. So thanks for saying that. I guess the one thing I would say though, is you in various leadership positions, you probably in that community, we don't have to necessarily go too far on a tangent on this, but you probably saw that to some degree, or maybe people were smart enough not to talk about it. In other words, like in my squadrons, you know, I was fortunate. I got what I wanted. I didn't meet too many people that were disappointed they didn't get P3s. Was it the opposite where you were when you were a squadron CO? Did you have young people come in and you could kind of see a little disappointment, but then you saw them come around like you did? It's really a wide mix, Jello, and it's hard to characterize that in terms of tangible numbers. Yeah. Certainly there were people like myself who had dreamed of being, you know, an F-14 pilot, saw a Top Gun when they were a kid, and they wanted to be a fighter pilot. Right. But there's plenty of folks who it was their first choice to go fly P3. Some of them were legacy. They'd watched a parent experience what the community has to offer. A lot of others were prior enlisted, for example, enlisted air crewmen in P3s who had learned from great examples of leadership, officer leadership on their crews and wanted to ascend and do the same thing. So Mm -hmm. it's actually probably more the exception than the norm of people who had a vision of doing something else with the naval aviation. I'd say the majority probably selected as their first choice. It kind of ebbs and flows over time. And again, I don't have the statistics to back it up, but that would be my general observation. Well, we'll see how it ebbs or flows, however you choose to look at it in regards to May's Top Gun Maverick. You know, that's sure to rile up some people that want to go fly Hornets or Super Hornets as the case is. But I appreciate those extra words, Leeds. And again, it's, I think, important for people to just be respectful of fate, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. But you can't always get what you want. You're right. He should make a song about that. He shouldn't just say it. All right, bud. Well, hey, so as you and I exchanged emails leading up to today, I said, hey, you know, we're going to talk about all maritime patrol. We could certainly touch on the P3 and the P8, sort of like our big wing tanker episode back on, I think, 85, where we talked about KC-10 and 135 in broad terms. When we're done here, maybe you could tell me there leads, maybe there will be a need for a separate episode for each if they're that compelling. But before we do that, as I said at the top, let's start with some history. 
And you provided me some really in-depth information from back when we first started flying as humans to today. So I will try to interject in there and I'll certainly try not to fall asleep, no offense. Uh, But I don't know if you're a historian or what, but what you wrote me sure looked pretty in-depth. So why don't you just take it from the top and I'll try to jump in from time to time. But Boy, you've got some information, I think, from, like I said, the dawn of aviation through World War One and Two, and Cold War, post-Cold War, 9-11, all the way to today. So let's hear about Maritime Patrol there, Leeds. Yeah, thanks, Jello. So if you think about military history in sort of a broad sense, commanders have always sought and used elevation to increase the area that they could survey to gather intelligence on enemy forces. Sure. And so before the advent of aviation or other objects that lifted men into the sky, that was the high ground. It was hills or mountains. And you'd go up on the hill or up on the mountain and use some sort of long-range optical device to gather intelligence on the disposition and number and location of enemy forces. So in the late 18th century, the French kind of accelerated that with the invention of silk air balloons, hot air balloons that could lift a man above the battlefield and therefore increase the horizon at which he could survey the enemy. And it was a revolutionary invention, and not many people know it, but the Union Army actually formed the Union Army Balloon Corps during the U.S. Civil War and used balloons for observation of Confederate forces. The principal barrier to the utility of balloons is their lack of mobility. And so aircraft and blimps solved that challenge. You know, blimps have some level of mobility, but they are limited in their speed Tremendous endurance, which is a capability of significance when you think about long-dwell reconnaissance, for example. But the airplane really solved that dimension with its range and speed that it added to airborne surveillance. And so as the Wright brothers performed their pioneering work in aviation in the early part of the 20th century, obviously it caught the interest of both U.S. military and foreign militaries. And the U.S. Navy appointed Eugene Ely as its first aviation officer in 1911. And the original vision for naval aviation and naval aircraft was to extend the surveillance horizon of the fleet to enable striking by the main striking element of the fleet, which at that time was, of course, the battleship, not the airplane. Mm -hmm. And so airplanes were enablers for the battleship Navy. That was all disrupted in 1921 through the series of Mitchell experiments, which were pushed forward by Army Brigadier General, I should say Army Air Corps Brigadier General, because of course the U.S. Air Force had not been formed yet. Mm -hmm. But U.S. Army Air Corps Brigadier General Billy Mitchell pushed forward a series of experiments with the Navy resisting because they were worried about the outcome, where General Mitchell wanted to prove that aircraft could perform maritime strike missions. And so they used three German Navy ships that had been surrendered after World War I. And ultimately, over the course of seven days in July of 1921, those three ships, including the battleship Ostfriesland, were sunk by strikes <laughs> from aircraft emanating from land, dropping bombs that weighed, I'll say, as much as 2,000 pounds back then. But you think about today, a 2,000-pound weapon is not that significant. And of course, the battleship <laughs> leadership of the U.S. Navy worried greatly about what this meant for air power as it foretold or portended the transition from the battleship being the main striking arm to aircraft becoming the main striking arm. And this is when you see a lot of experimentation with aircraft based both on land, maritime patrol aircraft, and aircraft carrier based 
aircraft. And so during the 1930s, there's a lot of experimentation going on, not just in the U.S., but in other places like the United Kingdom and Japan with aircraft carrier-based aviation, proving this CONOP, this concept of operation, that aircraft could become the main striking element of the fleet. And it's interesting to note that the agent of change for that transformation was an Army Air Corps officer, not a naval officer. Yeah, no doubt. Besides the lack of mobility, I would say, although I'm no historian, perhaps another limitation of the balloons is weren't they fairly susceptible to fire? I mean, they're kind of a big target and all you got to do is poke a hole in the thing and it's probably going to come down. Obviously, mobility in of itself is a key element of survivability. Yeah, and true. So exactly. They were highly vulnerable, whereas an aircraft could use three-dimensional maneuvering to reduce its vulnerability as it performed its surveillance and reconnaissance mission. All right. So let's continue. But again, with today's episode being a focus on the maritime patrol, which to me has a very distinctive ASW feel to it as far as a subject goes, but submarines start making an appearance. So let's keep going. Yeah. During the course of World War I, the German Navy perfected the use of submarine warfare to great effect, sinking both merchant shipping and military shipping. That led to an operational imperative to improve the effectiveness of anti-submarine warfare forces, both from ships That's why we see destroyers and destroyer escort tactics emerge, but also from aircraft because any submarine warfare with a ship, while it can be very effective, those ships move around the battle space at 30 knots at maximum. And when you're talking about a battle space the size of the Atlantic Ocean (laughs) or to an even greater degree, the Pacific Ocean, Mm -hmm. an airplane that can move around the battle space at three or four times that, I'm using the speeds of the aircraft at that time, greatly increases the response time and the amount of area that can be surveyed and effectively sanitized of submarines. And so the experience in World War II is kind of bifurcated along the two fronts. And I'm going to start with the Pacific front because the Atlantic front really leads to the Cold War chapter of maritime patrol aviation. The war in the Pacific was different. Obviously, if you read any history books or watch a movie about World War II, it inevitably centers upon the aircraft carrier. And we think about the epic battles led by aircraft carriers, whether it's the Japanese strike on Pearl Harbor or the wars at sea that took place at the Battle of Coral Sea, or of course, Midway, epic clash between Japanese and American aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. That's really front and center stage, but we've got to keep in mind the contribution of maritime patrol aircraft throughout the Pacific theater. And so while it's the aircraft carrier clashes that grab you know, the central place in World War II history, we shouldn't forget that it was a maritime patrol aircraft a PBY Catalina that located the Japanese force at Midway and ultimately led to that decisive war at sea victory that changed the course of the war in the Pacific. The other thing about the Pacific, huge battle space. And so we used maritime patrol aircraft in the form of PBY Catalina flying boats and also the Army Air Corps contributed with like Mm B-17s to distribute around the theater, around all those islands archipelagos in the South Pacific. And from there, we're able to harass and attack Japanese commercial shipping that was the critical supply lines to their combat forces that they were trying to sustain thousands of miles from the Japanese homeland to conduct these wars at sea. And so you've got, I'll say, valorous airmen loading up in a PBY Catalina armed with nothing but free fall bombs and a 50 caliber machine gun conducting attacks on Japanese shipping throughout the Pacific trying to disrupt their supply. And then, of course, you know, it's a little known fact or an often overlooked fact of World War II in the Pacific that the Japanese actually attacked and held American territory in the Pacific. They actually bombed Dutch Harbor, Alaska on June 4th, 1942, which is 
simultaneous to when the Midway engagement is going on to the south. Mm-hmm. And they also bombed Adak and seized and held territory on the islands of Attu and Kiska in the Aleutians chain. At this time, the U.S. Navy was marshalling forces down the South Pacific to get ready for that big island hopping campaign to retrench the Japanese progress that had been made back towards the Japanese homeland. And so the campaign to retake the ground and defend American territory in the Aleutian campaign was really an economy of force effort that was led by aircraft. I mean, there were some U.S. Navy ships involved, of course, but it was really about maritime patrol aviation in the form of PBY Catalinas and U.S. Army Air Corps B-17s, B-18s, and B-24s conducting maritime strikes on those Japanese ships, amphibious transports that had transported the troops to seize Atu and Kiska, and then the supply ships that were keeping them supplied. And so the Aleutians campaign is really an example of the striking potential of maritime patrol aircraft, albeit not in an epic war at sea like Midway, but no less important when you look at it from a theater perspective. Leeds, so let's talk semantics for a second. When we talk ASW and ASUW, right? So that's anti-submarine warfare and anti-surface, I guess, warfare. Are those subsets of maritime patrol, like a dog and a cat, are both animals? Or is maritime patrol sort of nebulous? Or help me with the semantics. Yeah, it's a really good question and one that's often misunderstood and interpreted in a number of different ways amongst, I'll say, theoreticians. In general, I would characterize maritime patrol as about surveillance and reconnaissance. And then, oh, by the way, you can add a lethal effect on top of that, destroying whatever it is that you have located by surveillance and reconnaissance. And so when we think about anti-submarine warfare, I would say that that's the process of finding a submarine, fixing its position, and then ultimately finishing it with some effect, nominally a torpedo drop from an airplane in the case of airborne ASW. Same goes for anti-surface warfare, finding a surface ship, fixing its position, and employing some form of weapon to strike it. Of course, somewhere in that discussion is the identification piece of it. But yeah, okay, your point is well taken. All right. So we've talked about the war in the Pacific, and I think you're coming back to the Atlantic because, again, I'm no student of history, but I guess there were some German submarines harassing us even right off our own coasts, right? Yeah, absolutely. And to great effect, you know, as you just alluded to, Jello, the Battle of the Atlantic was an entirely different character than the Battle in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And accordingly, maritime patrol aviation's role was significantly different, focused almost entirely on anti-submarine warfare. The German Navy had proven the effectiveness of submarines in World War One and then perfected the tactics to great effect in World War II, ultimately sinking 14.5 million tons of shipping in the Atlantic in the form of 175 Allied warships and 3,500 Allied merchant ships. The Royal Navy lost five aircraft carriers. Ponder that, Jello, and think about the effect of that on the force. And the U.S. Navy lost three aircraft carriers to submarines in World War II, two in the Pacific and one in the Atlantic highlighting a fact even today, while the aircraft carrier is the crown jewel of the fleet and the main striking element, it needs to be protected in the form of anti-submarine warfare. You know, the gravity of that submarine threat in the Atlantic led to rapid technological innovation to improve the effectiveness of anti-submarine warfare aircraft. And a lot of that technology is still in use today, whether it's air-launched weapons, be they depth bombs or soon to be, not during World War II, but shortly after World War II, anti-submarine warfare air-launched torpedoes, airborne radar, 
initially employed on maritime patrol aircraft. Those submarines, those German submarines were diesel submarines, obviously extremely difficult to detect when they were submerged, vulnerable to detection when they were on the surface, snorkeling to recharge your batteries. But of course, the Germans weren't stupid and they did most of that at night when they couldn't be detected visually which mandated this need for a sensor that we uncovered in the form of airborne radar that could detect either a surfaced or a snorkeling German submarine and execute an attack on it at night when they were on the surface and most vulnerable. Another technology that emerged was magnetic anomaly detection, or what's called MAD, that's still in use today Mm -hmm. across airborne ASW platforms. A submarine is a big chunk of metal, and when it moves along the Earth's surface, it deflects or changes the Earth's magnetic field. And with a properly tuned sensor, you can detect that you've passed over a submarine. And so you essentially fly some sort of ladder search pattern. Or if you've been cued by another sensor by radar, you can pinpoint the location of the submarine with MAD, magnetic anomaly detection. And then ultimately, we began to experiment with airborne sonar in the form of sauna buoys. So a sauna buoy is basically a small expendable package that has a hydrophone, like an underwater microphone, and a radio transmitter that transmits what the hydrophone hears back to the aircraft, where a trained listener uses both his eyes and his ears to detect, identify, classify, and ultimately pinpoint the location of submarines using sauna buoys. Let's let's take a tangent on sauna buoys real quick. Are they generally like one for all? as far as like passive and maybe active, or do you have different kinds depending on the mission? So in other words, right, maybe you don't want your adversary to know you're there, so you don't want to transmit anything. So maybe you just have some that listen, but maybe the same thing can do both. So just give us a quick one-on-one on sauna buoys. Yeah, excellent question, Jello. And so first of all, the simplest kind of sauna buoy is a sauna buoy that measures pressure. It's called a bathythermographic or BT buoy. And we don't want to get deep into the laws of physics and acoustics, which is a rather dry and boring subject. But the bottom line is the way that sound travels in the water is affected by water temperature, which varies greatly depending upon the region of the world and the season. And so one of the first things that a maritime patrol aircraft do when it gets on station is it drops a BT or bathythermographic buoy, which descends a temperature probe and measures the temperature in the water column. From there, there are, as you alluded to, either passive or active buoys with which to search for and track a submarine. And generally speaking, which type of buoy you would select is affected by which type of submarine you're targeting. And so, for example, a diesel submarine, which when it is under the surface of the water, runs on a battery. The layman's analogy is it's like searching for a flashlight by listening to it. Obviously, that is a challenging proposition to find with passive acoustics because it has a very low or small acoustic signature. On the other hand, a nuclear submarine, which has pumps that drive seawater through that nuclear reactor to keep it cool so it doesn't start to burn its way to the core of the earth, a nuclear submarine tends to have a signature that can be detected with passive buoys. Those are generalities. Of course, there's a variety of other factors that come into play. You identified one important one, which is if you're tracking a submarine with passive buoys, the adversary may not know that you're even there, therefore going about their business unalerted. Obviously, if you track them with an active buoy, think of the classic, you know, World War II, some sonar operator listening to a ping, (laughs) ping. Obviously, you get the benefit of detecting and pinpointing the location of that submarine with that active ping, but of course the submarine knows that you're there prosecuting them as well. 
Okay. So when it comes to, without getting too technical here, I suppose, but if you're prosecuting a target, you don't just fly over it and dump whatever Mark 1, Mod 0, Sonobu you have. You have different kinds based on what you want to do? Exactly. And, and that would have been planned well in advance because when you take off, <laughs> you select the buoy load and that's the buoy load you have for that mission. Right. So you need some intelligence about what kind of platform you're going to be tracking, what you think its mission is, and whether or not you want the platform to know that you're there prosecuting it or not. And if the answer is or not, then we're going to prosecute with passive sound buoys. Well, anyone who's listening to this from your community is slapping their foreheads right now because I'm so dumb, but hopefully my listeners will back me up because I just don't have any experience in this. And, you know, in the movies, when you rarely get, like you said earlier, a little love from Hollywood, they don't bother telling you anything other than, you know, whatever they're just throwing or shooting or dropping something in the water. So we don't get a lot of exposure to that. All right, so I don't know if we're done with World War II there or not, but obviously after World War II, then we have a big change in the world's political situation and the Cold War and all that. So keep the story going there, Leeds. This is awesome. Yeah, you know, obviously we shook hands with the Russians at the gates of Berlin after having declared victory in the European theater. And who knew yeah. what the path of the Soviet Union would become shortly thereafter, where they went from, you know, a ally during, in both theaters actually, went from an ally in World War II to our principal adversary as we transition into the Cold War yeah. in the late 1940s. The Soviets had learned from the Germans about the effectiveness of submarine warfare and embarked on a very ambitious submarine program of their own that started with diesel submarines. Of course, America was the first to launch a nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus, I think in the mid-1950s roughly, and the Soviets, through industrial espionage, gathered a lot of that nuclear technology and ultimately began to launch their own nuclear submarines beginning in the 1960s. And so as the Cold War relationship devolved into, if not open conflict, you know, we had a series of proxy wars throughout the world at this time, but cold conflict to include such crises as the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, Soviet submarines are ubiquitous throughout the Pacific and Atlantic theaters. And it took a large force of maritime patrol aircraft, along with other anti-submarine warfare assets as well. It's not all about maritime patrol aircraft. Of course, a submarine is a highly effective anti-submarine warfare platform. Right. Surface ships also are effective at ASW. But again, we talked about one of the advantages of maritime patrol aircraft are today they can get there at 440 knots and a thousand miles away when there's a pop-up. That's something that takes a surface ship days to do compared to what a maritime patrol aircraft can do in three years, for example, highlighting the advantage of range, speed, and endurance that a maritime patrol aircraft brings. And so at the height of the Cold War in 1980, the Soviets had 480 submarines in their inventory. Not all those are nukes. There's diesels in that inventory as well. And the U.S. Navy had 24 active duty P-3 squadrons, 14 reserve P-3 squadrons, operating more than 450 P-3s. Truly, it was a global effort, a game of cat and mouse, the U.S. Navy's P-3 force executing what I would call a hold-at-risk strategy because those Soviet nuclear submarines deployed nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles literally off the coasts of both coasts of the United States. It was P-3s armed with live torpedoes in the belly sitting on top of them 24-7 that held them at risk to give the Soviets doubt of whether or not they could successfully execute a first strike or whether or not we would take down some of those nuclear ballistic missile submarine forces before they even had a chance to launch their payloads. And then the Cold War ended and the world changed almost overnight. 
when the Berlin Wall came crashing down. And accordingly, the maritime patrol community was all about anti-submarine warfare. And that mission, that imperative disappeared almost overnight. I did my first deployment to Kefovic, Iceland in 1993. At that point, no longer the Soviet Union, but Russia was trying to figure out what it would look like. Would it join the community of nations? Would it join Europe going forward? Needless to say, during that first deployment to Keflavik, Iceland, a classic Cold War deployment site, there was not a lot of Russian submarine activity. Hmm. That kind of told the broader tale of the U.S. Navy's maritime patrol community. The community needed to redefine itself and essentially remake itself to something that was going to be relevant to that new strategic setting where there was no longer an imperative for a large force to do ASW against Soviet submarines. And so, like the rest of the Navy, the maritime patrol community fell victim to the peace dividend. And we went over a period of seven years from 24 active duty squadrons down to 12 hmm. and from 14 reserve squadrons down to two, which is the force structure that we maintain to this day. Additionally, it required some innovative thinking. And Desert Shield and Storm in 1991 really helped the community through that thinking because we went up into the Arabian Gulf to support strikes against Iraqi Navy targets by A6s and S3s operating off the aircraft carriers. But we found that our P3s that were so well suited to blue water ops out of places like Bermuda and Iceland and ADAC were not suited to going up north to the top end of the Arabian Gulf near threat environments. And so that led to a new set of requirements that we ultimately codified in a program called the Anti-Surface Warfare Improvement Program, or AIP, that added new capabilities to be relevant in a new strategic environment, including precision targeting with a new multi-mode radar that had both ISAR, inverse synthetic aperture radar, which identifies and classifies ships at sea, and synthetic aperture radar, which can image targets over land and identify targets over land and a new EOIR sensor or a turret or a ball that had high-definition day-night imaging capability. We added precision weapons because the AGM-84 harpoons that we used in the blue water scenarios of the Cold War weren't going to work near land to engage, for example, small patrol craft-sized targets. And so we added IR-guided Maverick missiles, and we also added the standoff land attack missile to strike coastal or even targets inland from the littoral domain where we were operating at that time. And then we knew we needed to improve the survivability of the airplane. So we incorporated chaff and flare dispensers and missile warning systems. And we put explosive suppressant foam in the fuel tanks so that we had more confidence in being able to take it into this new environment where we envisioned ourselves operating in the future in a contested or partially contested zones in the littoral, littoral being defined as the coastal regions around the globe where we expected the next conflict to be. Well, in some regards, your community did what a lot of businesses have to do, right? When the advent of the internet, it wasn't like it used to be with mail catalogs and obviously brick and mortar all changed. So you have to change too, otherwise you'll be obsolete. But let me go back to P3s flying over the subs sitting off our coasts. You know they're there and you talked a little bit about how you detect them. Did they know you were there? It depended. And in fact, we had tactics that fleet commanders would employ to remind them that they were being held at risk, Jello. Mm. And so we could hold them at risk without them knowing that we were there. Or sometimes we would deploy small acoustic devices that would intentionally allow them or not allow them. 
It would make it clear <laughs> that there was a P3 yeah. holding them at risk. So in the inevitable race of arms, was there ever a time that you know of, and I'm getting sci-fi here on you, so they can shoot a missile that pops up out of the water and then all of a sudden the rocket fires and off it flies to do its mission. Couldn't they have had some kind of surface to air, like, hey, these P3s are a pain in our rear ends, let's take them out? I would expect the queuing for that would be pretty hard versus just launching a missile on a fixed city or something. But I mean, in World War II, they had, right, they would surface and they had guns they could dry off and fire. Yeah, excellent point, which that targeting solution was easy because the submarines on the surface and could yeah. easily detect uh, <laughs> the aircraft that it was seeking to defend itself against. So the Soviets did play around with SAM, the generic name for a surface-to-air missile. Right. The Soviets had a program called SUB-SAM, a submarine-launched surface-to-air missile. Huh. But as you alluded to, the targeting for it is really tough without exposing something because that infrared-guided missile it needs to be sent down some range and bearing in azimuth or elevation, basically. It can't just be launched blindly from the sea and then search about the big blue sky <laughs> and find that aircraft that it's seeking to defend itself against. Right. So there was a program called SubSAM to launch infrared-guided surface-to-air missiles from submarines. I really don't know much about the effectiveness. I would presume that it's generally deemed to be not effective. Yeah. Every once in a while, I get a question on the show about rear firing missiles. You remember Firefox? We're almost the same age, it sounds like. So when I was a kid, I don't know about you, I really enjoyed the movie Firefox. And inevitably, I'll get a question, hey, how come they don't have rear firing missiles? Apparently, again, the Soviets, or maybe it was the Russians after, played around with that idea. And I'm sure we looked at it also. But some things, if it's just too difficult, you got to just figure out another way. All right. So we're up to, I think, around Desert Storm, mid-90s, maybe now. And the P3 community, or the, I guess, Maritime Patrol community, has sort of what rebranded itself and decided our principal mission has gone away, but we can still be very valuable to fleet commanders. Absolutely. And not just fleet commanders, but joint commanders, joint force commanders to include army and air force commanders that would really played out over the Balkans during the decade of the 1990s. So, you know, the former Yugoslavia disintegrated. And of course we had ethnic cleansing going on in Bosnia, Herzegovina as the various factions or, mm -hmm. or religious sects, if you will, sought to, make their vision of what the former Yugoslavia would become. It was during that conflict that P3s really pioneered overland surveillance using high-resolution electro-optics in support of peace enforcement or peace operations in Bosnia and Herzegovina, enforcing the Dayton Peace Accords, for example, that were signed in 1995. And then during uh, Operation Allied Force in 1995, which was you know launched in response to Serbia's ethnic cleansing that was going on in Kosovo, the community actually got the opportunity or was, I shouldn't say got the opportunity, was called upon to launch weapons, which was the first time that the U.S. Navy's P3 community had launched weapons since the Vietnam War. And we were called upon to launch standoff land attack missiles or SLAMs at mobile targets throughout the Balkan theater. You know, one of the advantages was if you think about the early days of GPS guided weapons like JDAM or standoff land attack missiles. The pilot programmed in the target set when he took off, that was uploaded into the missile, and then he executed the mission, and he could select one of the pre-planned mission sets that had been loaded into the bomb or the missile. But there was no capability to change that in flight. Well, in P3s, given the capacity, it's a big airplane, you got a lot of crew members, what we did is we brought that mission planning system that had put the targeting information into the weapon, 
we brought that aboard the airplane. And therefore, we could actually make changes to the mission in flight, which led to this valuable dynamic targeting capability. If you think about how clever the Serbs were using mobility, deception, camouflage, with in particular their SA-6s, it was a difficult targeting problem. And the P-3 proved to be an airplane that had a lot of capacity, could carry four slams, stay on station for a long time, just loitering, waiting to be called on for one of these dynamic targeting packages to come its way. The crew would put the new coordinates, basically plan the mission on the fly and let the weapon fly at the target. 14 times that was performed over the course of Allied Force back in 1999. Very cool. Hey, let's take a step back real quick. And maybe it's not a big story, but I forgot to ask you about, say, Korea and Vietnam. You just mentioned Vietnam. I'm sure your community was there representing, but what do we need to know about those two conflicts? Yeah. So in Korea, you know, the North Koreans didn't really have a Navy. There wasn't a lot of need for maritime patrol aviation. I got to confess, Jello, I really don't know all that much about maritime patrol aviation in the Korean conflict. I think it remained largely focused on the Soviet threat and didn't focus on the conflict on the Korean peninsula. Vietnam conflict's a little bit different because, of course, one of the lines of operation or one of the campaign plans was to try and disrupt the flow of logistics from the north into the south to support the Viet Cong insurgency. And so, of course, overland, that meant trying to bomb and interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail But at sea, there was also a significant component of the junks, you know, the small little North Vietnamese and Viet Cong surface ships that nominally plied their trade, fishing or transporting small amounts of supplies. That became a important supply line, particularly if we started interdicting the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And therefore, maritime patrol aircraft, P-2s, which is a predecessor to P-3s, and then, of course, P-3s as well, deployed out of places like the Philippines played a role in Operation Market Time was the name of the operation to try and interdict Ah. the maritime flow of supplies from North Vietnam to the Viet Cong insurgency in the South. In fact, Jello, we lost two P-3s to enemy action during the Vietnam conflict. Really? You can't even make this up, and I'm sorry, I get a little bit emotional talking about this. It came from the same squadron during the same deployment based here in Brunswick, Maine, where I live today. So VP-26 lost two airplanes, two months apart. That's 24 air crewmen Mm. that went on deployment and didn't come home. And this is in the days of, of course, there's no internet. This is record message traffic sent back home with the families back here left to deal with. Two of the 12 crews that went on deployment didn't come home. Yikes! One of them we know for a fact was shot down by enemy small arms fire down south off the coast of Vietnam. The other one, it was not clear that exactly the cause of the loss, but it is presumed to be due to enemy fire as well, performing Operation Market Time missions, trying to interdict the flow at sea. Well, hats off to that squadron and all their families, because one is bad enough, and to have two in a short succession, poof, that must have been tough. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that, Leeds. So let's catch back up to where we were. I think we're trying to get now around the war on terror, I'm thinking. Yeah. And so... The decade of the 90s had sort of completed the transformation that we talked about from the Cold War-oriented force to this new littoral and overland ISR-oriented force, which was perfect timing for the calamity that happened on 9-11 and the demand for overland ISR that ensued from it. We can all remember what we were doing on that fateful day back in September of 2001. Oh, yeah. Just look at a map of Afghanistan and how far it is from anywhere 
and one of the first elements of national power we could muster to start figuring out what we were going to do was P3s because of their range and endurance. Mm-hmm. And so you had P3s based in the Arabian Gulf region that would fly through the Arabian Ocean. I need to get my geography correct here. I guess it's the North Arabian Sea, yeah. south of Iran, south of Pakistan, up through Pakistan, up into Afghanistan to try and survey Taliban and Al-Qaeda positions to support the ultimate special operations and then the invasion by conventional forces that took place. If you look around the U.S. DOD inventory, there aren't many multi-mission, multi-sensor aircraft that have the range and endurance to do that from a place like the Arabian Gulf, the Arabian Peninsula, all the way up to Afghanistan. P-3s were called on extensively during the early days of Afghan operations starting in uh, 2002, Operation Enduring Force. And that continued after we invaded Iraq in March of 2003 with Operation Iraqi Freedom. The same thing happened as U.S. ground forces rapidly advanced from their bases in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, rapidly advanced on Baghdad. They were supported by P-3s always looking ahead at what the enemy disposition was in the next town that they were going to be encountering. We're back to the days of using the high terrain or balloons to sense out in front of the advancing forces. It's no different than it was two centuries earlier, just different technology. That's right. All things old are new again and same with fashion. I think you said Operation Enduring Force. I think it was Operation Enduring Freedom. Yeah, thanks for setting me straight. No, no worries. I don't like to point out mistakes, but in the interest of being accurate. Just to jump ahead, we'll talk about aircraft in a moment, but that sounds like a really long flight. I'm wondering what your personal longest flight was in a P3, Leeds. (laughs) 13.2. Wow. But you're not strapped into your seat the whole time. I mean, you guys have got a galley and a place to relieve yourself. Uh, You probably even have like an elliptical or bike of some sort, I'm thinking. Coffee maker, all the uh, creature comforts required to maintain human performance over the course of 10, 11, 12, 13 hours jello. And, you know, I should add that those missions were refueled because of that range problem we just talked about from the Arabian Peninsula up into Afghanistan. 13.2 for one leg of it, get gas and then finish the transit back to your home base. You're looking at like 18 hour days with a gas stop somewhere there in the middle. And you just said it, but just to be clear, that's not in-flight refueling. That is stopping somewhere, getting some gas. Probably don't leave the airplane and go get a hotel for a day. I'm guessing you just stand by, get your fuel, and then go. All right. Well, yeah, you hear a little bit about it. At least I did in my circles. Hey, P3s are out there doing good work. And that's great because, again, right, you guys' world has sort of changed. But as we get to now today, like you said, right? You're kind of back to old things are new, but are you sort of back to the submarine thing? Because we've got to pivot to the Pacific, don't we? I wouldn't say just a pivot to the Pacific, but I'd say that the world changed. Mm -hmm. The world has always undergoing change. The pivot to the Pacific was part of it, but I'd say the change was really accelerated on the 24th of February when Russia invaded the Ukraine. And that's really changed, not just how the US, but frankly, all of our allies around the globe view the current security situation. You look at the Russian armed forces, when the Soviet Union fell apart back in the late 1980s, obviously Russia was on the verge of bankruptcy. They really stopped investing in their armed forces, both in terms of equipment, people, training, modernization, except in one force, and that is their submarine force. Russia always saw the value of that. And while certainly investment declined from what the submarine force enjoyed during the course of the Cold War, they really maintained some investment in qualitative improvements to the Russian submarine force. It's creating a security concern today. 
in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. And it is a little bit like history rhyming with itself back to the Cold War again with maritime patrol aircraft out on station, maintaining track of Russian submarines. Well, I think maybe uh, Leeds, they just wanted Harrison Ford and Sean Connery and other big name actors to continue to have something to portray. Maybe I should include, although it didn't so much feature the enemy subs in there, but Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman at any rate. So interestingly, submarines seem to have plenty of spots in Hollywood, but not so much you guys. So if nothing else, maybe we'll uh, help with that effort on this episode there, Leeds. So is that it for our history lesson, uh, bringing us up to today? I mean, that is quite the broad, but also very amazing, frankly, story of maritime patrol. And and we're going to drill down now on some of the hardware, but that's fascinating stuff. Yeah, sounds great. The only note that I didn't add is today it's being done almost exclusively with P-8s in a U.S. Navy context. Yeah. So the last U.S. Navy P-3 squadron stood down in 2019 and went through P-8 transition. The two U.S. Navy Reserve squadrons are beginning their transition from P-3s to P-8s right now, which will round out a 60-year chapter of service for P-3s. They hit initial operational capability in 1962 And that last reserve squadron, I guess maybe they'll take it into 2023. It might exceed 60 years. That's amazing. Real quick on the history again. Is there, I didn't warn you, I'd ask you this, but maybe with your experience, you'll know. Is there a book about all this somewhere? Has someone succinctly summarized Maritime Patrol in a book? I mean, come on, there's books for everything these days. If you can't think of one off the top of your head, maybe you're the man, Leeds. (laughs) Yeah, Jello, I think I'm going to have to do some research and follow up with you on that. Maybe you can post it on our note on your website because- There certainly are books about maritime patrol. They tend to be, I'll say, individually experienced folks. Yeah, vignettes. Yeah, and so this is an author's perspective. Based on my experience, here's the story of maritime patrol, but not like, you know, a theater-wide assessment of the role of PBY Catalinas in World War II, for example, or P3s in the Cold War in the Atlantic Theater. I'm unfortunately not aware of a body of work like that. I see an opportunity here for you or whoever's listening who has some downtime, because I'm sure this wouldn't be a very big effort. <clears throat> anyway, all right, Leeds, let's move into hardware. Let's start with aircraft. And over to you on what you think we need to know. Again, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we've had whole episodes dedicated to the fighters, frankly, and a lot of the helicopters and the other sexy stuff. You can convince me if you want, Leeds, as soon as you know we're done with this segment, that we still do need entire episodes on the P3 or the P8 or whatever. But talk to me about from maybe the Catalina through the Poseidon. Well, first of all, I wasn't there for the Cold War. I think it'd be great to bring on a guest who was Jello, who could add more perspective. I hit the Cold War at a very skin deep level. We should go down to the bone sure. on what it was like to be on top of a Soviet submarine with live weapons in the bomb bay, waiting for that signal as we held them at risk. That's just something that I, I don't have the firsthand experience to talk about. You know, the transition from P3s to P8s was an exciting one, obviously. Huge cultural transition to think about. Did you go through a classic to Super Hornet transition? Oh, yeah. But for me, because I was already regular Hornet qualified, that it was, I think, a day of lectures and five hours in flight. Not all at once, like three or four flights. Huge transition from P3s to P8 to go from a four-engine turboprop airplane to a twin-engine turbofan yeah. and a huge technology leap as well. I went through my transition as a captain, as an 06, sitting next to ensigns in class. And I used to joke, I know exactly, and I should give you the context of a P3 was a very analog airplane, obviously. Mm-hmm. you know, First flew in the late 1950s, initial operational capability in 1962. You go inside the cabin of a P3 and there's wafer and rotary and toggle switches and red guarded switches everywhere. And it's a very manual tactile airplane. 
then you go to a P8 and you're a guy in the back like me and your interface is a keyboard and a mouse. Mm -hmm. And I drop a torp by double clicking on a mouse. And it's just unsettling for dinosaurs like me. We had dinosaurs, which were people who were P3 guys transitioned to P8. And we had thoroughbreds, young kids who were born and just became P8 operators right off the bat. And I used to joke when I was going through transition, I know exactly what I want this P8 airplane to do. I just don't know how to make it do it. But that young kid sitting next to me, he knows exactly how to make it do what it should do. He just doesn't know what the airplane is supposed to be doing yet. Yeah. But he'll learn that over time. Well, that ensign, by the way, right? He or she was probably raised with iPhones and iPads. Yeah, dinosaurs is probably a polite way to put it for us, but you can't stop progress. So how has that transition gone? Has it been fraught with some challenges? I mean, because with new technology and new capabilities comes a new way of employing. And people like you that are in, I don't mean this to be accusatory, but right, you were in, I think you said you were the patrol wing Commodore. So you're looking at it with all these years and all these hours of this is how we did it, or maybe even this is how we do it. But now this 737 turned patrol plane is a whole new way of thinking and acting and employing, I would think. Yeah. I'll give you a great example of that. When I was the wing commander of the Commodore, as you said, Jello, I made it my mantra to stay out of the way of the young people who were going to lead the innovation of this airplane. All I needed to do was create the conditions for them to go out and innovate. And here's a classic example. So in P3s, in Alphas and Bravos, P3 Alphas and P3 Bravos, the first two series, if you will, the radio operator was an enlisted man because it was a teletype. <laughs> and so the enlisted was the tactical communicator on the crew. And then in P3 Charlies, which is they were introduced in the early 1970s to give you a sense of time. And that's the airplane that I grew up flying in. Mm -hmm. Only the officers on the crew, the two pilots at the controls and the two naval flight officers, the TACO and the NAVCOM, the navigator communicator, had access to the radios. And it became a paradigm that only officers talked on the radios. And so you had your enlisted sensor operators in the back who had all the tactical information relaying it to the officers who then relayed it over a radio. When we got to P8, P8 has chat over satellite. So you can literally have a running dialogue with a, a shore commander on a ship and every station has access to chat. And so when the airplane was first introduced, there was a paradigm of, hey, only officers talk on the radio, so only officers can use chat. <laughs> and we added so many sensors on a P8 and there was so much information coming in. For example, we've got the same electronic support measures or ESM system that's on an EA-18G growler. So we detect the same things that a growler detects. With all that information coming in, it made no sense for that enlisted non-acoustic operator to relay that information to an officer who then typed it into chat. And so one of the things I said is, let the non-acoustic operator chat that data direct with his peers who are sitting on ships or sitting at land stations and let him have a chat about what the electronic warfare environment looks like. And it was that kind of innovation that needed to take place to shatter paradigms that were formed by, that's how we used to do it. That's how the old system worked. And I considered it job number one to just create the conditions for innovation, which was largely to stay the hell out of their way. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. 
Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Well, good on you. But I would think also anytime you tell me something and I tell it to someone else, right? What was that game we played as kids? Telephone, telegraph, whatever. You know, I'm going to screw it up because there's all kinds of barriers to good communication. So if we can remove the middleman, that probably helps. Just getting back to aircraft, though, I mean, is there anything, and again, I don't know your particular history experience or levels of knowledge, but is there anything we need to know for this episode as far as the Catalina or the, what was it, the P-2, the Neptune, right? Just that they were what, the iterative patrol planes that were used and what more do we need to know as far as what you can tell us? One of the gaps across the U.S., and we see this in other allied forces like the Japanese, for example, maintain a flying boat force. And it's really fascinating that the U.S., Either Navy or Coast Guard doesn't have a flying boat capability because if you think of a long-range rescue at sea, mm-hmm. like let's say a distressed fishing vessel that's 1,500 miles out to sea, well, a P-3 can go out there or nowadays a P-8 can go out there and we drop life rafts, which right. adds to the life-saving effort, but it's not like landing next to that distressed <laughs> vessel and having a swimmer come out and carry them to safety in this flying boat. And then the flying boat returns to land. The Catalina had that capability. And in fact, a U.S. Navy Medal of Honor winner from World War II was a Catalina pilot who, in the midst of Japanese shore-based enemy fire, went and rescued a bunch of B-17 airmen that had been shot down in the Solomon's archipelago as they were executing a strike on land. Ultimately awarded the Medal of Honor for his role using his flying boat as a combat search and rescue platform, yeah. essentially. We had the next generation of flying boat after PBYs. We had the P-5 Marlin, which served into the 1960s for sure. And it's just interesting to think about the utility of a flying boat going forward. Maybe not for the U.S. Navy, because obviously they're limited in speed mm-hmm. and range. But it's interesting why the Japanese maintain a flying boat capability and, and the U.S. Coast Guard doesn't, for example. So yeah. the PBYs had that capability as flying boats. When I was based in Atsugi, Japan, it was the Goonie Bird, I think we called it. And it was a big source of comfort because, yes, we operated quite a ways out and the water was cold. And if we went down, we knew that theoretically it might take, like you said, a couple hours, but it can come out there and, and land next to you. Another great story that I remember about Catalina's having read it, obviously not been there. Are you familiar with the book In Harm's Way? tells the story of the USS Indianapolis, which was, if anyone remembers, it's the ship that delivered the first atomic bomb. And then because of some screw-ups in scheduling, nobody knew where it went after that and it ended up getting torpedoed and sunk. And the poor souls on board spent something like four days in the ocean. And the movie Jaws, that crazy character who, who uh, says he can hunt a shark, his character is loosely based on one of the survivors because the people in the water really did get tore up by sharks. But apparently there was a patrol Catalina flying over and he saw the oil slick and some of the people. And once he realized they were friendly, he landed in the rough seas and basically the airplane was stricken from the hard landing, but he just felt like they needed that comfort and it stayed afloat. 
and he was able to put people up on the wings and give them water and, and everything else. But I just remember the feeling that they must have had delirious at that point, four days in the water to see this angel essentially not only fly over, like you said, okay, a raft would be great, but to land next to them, that must have been like nothing else. I'm familiar with the episode, but I'm going to have to add the book to my reading list because I have to confess I haven't read it, Joel. Oh, In Harm's Way. I've read it twice. It's a great, great book. So we've got some listener questions coming up. So we'll continue with the P3 versus P8. But yeah, generally speaking, like you said, right, four engine turboprop for the P3, something like 12 people on board. Do we need to, in this context, discuss the difference between the P3 and say the EP3? Is that Maritime Patrol or is that a whole separate episode on the show? I think it should be a separate episode. We call that part of the community the reconnaissance part. And so, you know, I've been referring to it as maritime patrol aviation. Mm -hmm. Most correctly, it would be referred to as maritime patrol and reconnaissance aviation to include our EP3 brethren. Okay. I think it would be good for a separate episode. And the reason I say is because that mission is also in the process of transitioning, just like we transition from P3 to P8, that mission is in the process of transitioning from EP3 MQ-4 Triton, hmm. an unmanned aerial system. So I think that would be good grist for a future episode. Not knowing anything about that community, though, Leeds, I have to admit, I always imagined an interview going something like this. So tell me about this. Oh, I can't. All right. Um, how about that? No, that's classified. <laughs> you know, one word answers the whole time. I might be wrong. I don't know. I'm sure there's some enough generic stuff they can tell us. And if you find the right person, they can always make it exciting, as you've been. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see if we can't get someone from the EP3. Plus, like J Stars and Rivet Joint, we always get requests for all those too. And I just imagine, yeah, maybe they don't want to talk. I don't know. I think that the right interviewee could make the subject work. Okay. Well, under hardware besides aircraft, I have systems and weapons. Now, for systems, you already alluded to, you have, like you said, the different things on the aircraft, radar, sonar, sonar buoys. I don't know if that's considered a weapon or part of your systems. I think it's amazing that you can detect what do we call it, a mast, whatever the submarine puts out, particularly in rough seas, but maybe there's some limitations to that. But I'm sure a lot of that is classified. What do we need to know? What are we allowed to know about systems on either a P3 or a P8, just sticking with your experiences? I would say just in general terms, sea state is one of the largest factors towards detecting uh, part of a submarine that's exposed above the surface, whether it's a mast or a periscope or a snorkel, whatever the case may be. Obviously in calm seas, with a variety of sensors to include visual, it's much easier to detect the disturbance mm -hmm. that emanates from that as you get into higher sea states, which of course also makes it harder for the submarine to maintain that condition as well near the surface without broaching the surface. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in general, a non-acoustic search for a master, a periscope or a snorkel is more effective in calmer seas. I think periscope was the word that was escaping me at the moment. So will there be, no kidding, people looking out the windows, maybe even with binoculars in some cases? Absolutely. Visual is a highly effective search tool. Huh. Obviously, its range is somewhat limited, but it can often detect things. You know, as the aircraft moves along, you've got all its other sensors sweeping. And the place that's not swept is directly in the vicinity of the aircraft. Because, for example, with radar, you get into sort of the altitude hole of the radar. Yeah. And so visual is a highly effective form of search. I was on one of our exercises. I don't remember if it was like a Comp2X or a JTFX. It really doesn't matter, I suppose. But it was one of these exercises leads where there was a scenario, right? So we were in the Puerto Rican operating area and there was a enemy force, which of course was all still American forces. But And one of the things they always told us was, hey, if you see a submarine, make sure you tell us right away. And I thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, when am I ever going to see a, a submarine in my F-18? 
Well, I'll be darned one day. And I don't remember, I wish my memory was better. If part of it was surface, I guess, we were flying just south of an island and I looked down and I could see this thing. Of course, the Caribbean waters are pretty clear, but I could see a submarine just below the surface, this big black thing. And I thought, holy cow, that's a submarine. Hey, wait, I'm supposed to play the game here. So I radioed it back. And for a while, my wingman and I, or I forget if I was the wingman, but either way, we were like the heroes. Like, oh, we spotted the submarine and now we can do this part of the exercise or whatever. I don't know. For me, that was my two minutes of uh, maritime patrol glory. It was seeing a submarine that was mostly submerged. I don't remember if part of it was surfaced, you know, like you said, the periscope or the mast or something in an exercise. So I put myself in for a medal, but I didn't get it. Yeah, well, so Jello, we talked earlier about the history of the Brits losing five aircraft carriers in World War II and the Americans losing three to submarines. <laughs> we need to remind the air wing guys, that guy is a threat to you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's in your interest to report the position of that submarine so somebody can do something about it yeah. so that you've got a dry rack to sleep in tonight when you land back aboard the ship. Yeah, no doubt. All right. For weapons, you've already talked about Slam ER. You've talked about, did we talk about Harpoon? I think that's on there as well, right? So that's basically an air launched anti-surface weapon. You talked about torpedoes. We talked about, what do you consider, by the way, a sonar buoy? Is that a weapon or just a sensor? We call it ordnance, actually. Okay. Not a weapon, but ordnance. Ordnance, sure. Without the eye. Was there ever just good old-fashioned depth charges that you could kick out the bottom or the back of a P3 or a P8 uh, where it would just sink a, a little bit and explode like you see in World War II movies? Even today, we train to employ depth bombs. Okay. Because, for example, a tactic of diesel submariners is to bottom the submarine, literally allow the submarine to sink and come to rest on the bottom. And that becomes a really difficult problem because it's difficult to pick the submarine out of the clutter of the bottom as you're looking for it. And one of the only ways to attack that would be with depth bombs. And so depth bombs were pioneered during World War II. They continue to be part of the inventory today. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea. How about mines? Yep. Both P3s and P8s are capable of employing mines. I'm not aware of any times throughout history where it's actually been used, but it's certainly part of the mission and part of the training regimen. Even in the F-18, we trained to mines. We had to do some planning. There was always like one person whose collateral duty was to be the expert on that. And he or she would have to go to some squadron, like a P3 squadron and like get some mine theory or something. But how about, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask anyway, guessing not on the P8, but probably on the P3, any kind of crew served weapons? Would there be a need to stick something out the window or out the back and light them up? No, no such thing. Although it, that might get us into the movies if we had that jello, but unfortunately the answer is no. Yeah. And I've said out the back, I think more than once, but to be fair, there is no out the back of a P3, right? That's not a cargo ramp or something like that. Yeah. So actually in a P3, you could open the main cabin door in flight. Okay. We did use that to allow parachuters to jump out of the P3. So, for example, we could support special operations missions uh-huh. out of a P3 with, uh, you know, airborne insertion, if you will. In a P8, you can't open any of the uh, portals in flight. I imagine. Cool. Well, let's get to the people. And whereas on history, I had the dawn of aviation through today. On hardware, I had aircraft systems and weapons. You know, on the people part, leads, I really didn't write down anything to myself because I guess, you know, the people make the community. And we could certainly talk about the training and the billets and the roles and all that, but I wasn't really sure what to ask you. I guess I want to leave it up to you on who you think, not who, but the what of the who, whether it's the roles of the people in the aircraft or the training that they go through or how many officers versus enlisted. So how about you just help me out on this one? Yeah, great. This is probably my favorite talk to talk about. I'm sure. About the community. And, And I always start with by saying that 
Maritime Patrol is truly a team sport. Of course. You get a crew of, it was 12 in P3s when I started flying. Then we eliminated our in-flight ordnance men, which took it down to a crew of 11. That was five officers. That's three pilots, two naval flight officers, and then six enlisted air crewmen. And then when we transitioned to P8, the crew was further reduced down to nine because of the automation in that P8 cockpit, which is a 737 next generation derivative. Mm -hmm. We didn't need the two flight engineers anymore. The flight engineers managed fuel and generators and all that in a P3. And the need for that went away in a P8. But here's the bottom line about being a team sport. There is no person on that crew that is less important or more important than any other person on that crew. And so our 22-year-old third-class petty officer, who is the radar operator, is equally important to the 35-year-old lieutenant commander, aircraft commander. They have equal parts in determining the success or failure of that mission. And it really created this tight bond amongst crews. And we organize in such a way that you form a crew and you go through an entire cycle together, a cycle normally being deployed as 12 months at home, preparing for deployment, and then a six-month deployment before you return for another 12 months at home. And crew integrity, maintaining that same group of nine people together in a P-8 is central to our community's ethos so that you get to know each other and you understand how each thinks and communicates, and it just creates a more effective team. I can't overstate the importance of the junior enlisted aircrew sensor operators on a P-3 or a P-8 crew. The mission fails or succeeds depending on how well they do their jobs. It's not just a officer-centric job. Well, I don't doubt that. Can we talk about one of those people? Let's say you've got, like you said, a second-class petty officer. Walk me through, we don't have to talk about boot camp, but what happens after boot camp? What's their rating? What's their training to go fly in a P-8? They become what's called an AWO, is their rating, or Aviation Warfare Systems Operator. They get on to Pensacola. As you know, everybody who steps in a naval airplane went through Pensacola at some point in their life. That's really important culturally, actually. Yeah. We've got this common reference point, if you will. So aircrew technical training is in Pensacola. They go through aircrew school down in Pensacola. They go through the same physiology and water survival classes that we went through as officer aviators. And then they go off to the fleet replacement squadron, the training squadron to learn to fly their first airplane, just like the officers did. And just like officers, just like you had, you know, an air combat training continuum where you show up and you're a level one and you make your way up to being a level five, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Exact same principle for enlisted air crewmen in a P3 or P8. They have the same goals for qualification and levels of qualification, ultimately becoming a weapons and tactics instructor, WTI, is sort of the crown jewel achievement for an enlisted air crewman or an officer, pilot, or NFO, same thing. And so I want to ask you about the pilots and NFOs in a moment, but for the air crew, the ACOs, AWO. AWO. Will they do a C tour, shore tour type of rotation like we do? And if so, what will they do on their non-C duty? First of all, officer tours tend to be a little bit shorter. Typically for your first or junior officer tour, it's depending on policy anywhere from 36 months to maybe 42, three and a half years roughly. And then your future tours in naval aviation are two years or less, essentially. Generally, yeah. For enlisted air crewmen, because of the level of training that's been invested in them. And oh, by the way, because of the importance of experience, particularly for like our acoustic operators who spend all that time learning to visually and orally classify threat and friendly submarines. They do long sea tours, often four and a half years, 54 months in their first tour. And you think about, we talked about the rhythm of the U.S. Navy's maritime patrol community, 12 months at home, 
six months on deployment, 12 months at home, they might get four deployments during that first tour, depending on their timing when they check in. So they're really rowing hard. And then you ask, what do they go and do from there? Of course, the crown jewel assignment would be instructors to grow the next generation right. that goes on to replace them for what they did. But then, you know, you've got these same options open to other enlisted sailors across the Navy, whether it's going to boot camp to be an instructor, a variety of shore duty positions. That makes sense. Okay. And then, so for the officer corps, they go through Pensacola, like you said, the pilot training route or the NFO route, and they'll stay, like you said, three years or so. The one thing I want to ask you, I don't know, I think this is kind of diabolical on the sake of the Navy. The shooters on carriers are often from the P3 community, or I suppose P8 these days. And I always just figured, well, you've had it so good, at least from our perspective, you guys have it good, right? You've had it so good, you have to go suffer with the air wings or, you know, you need to go get some actual Navy stink on you. So your folks would come out and they'd be our shooters and arresting your officers and all that. Is that pretty typical? And and if so, is that a position that's sought after or run away from? It's a position that you need to do in order to, I'll say, meet the traditional wickets of a, of a career in maritime patrol aviation. Shooters, arresting gear officers you talked about, but also other positions on the carrier like yeah. tactical action officers, TAOs, the assistant navigator, on the strike group staff, I was an admiral's aide. Those are all positions that traditionally have been filled by P3 and now P8 aviators or maritime patrol aviators, it's really important for their professional development, Jello. Obviously, we lead a different lifestyle. Mm -hmm. We deploy and we're shore-based, right? right? And while we support the Navy and operations at sea, it's really important culturally that we go off and do those tours. We call it a disassociated sea tour because it's not in our community. I don't have the statistics, but I'm guessing it's well north of 50% of those lieutenant-level billets on the aircraft carrier Lieutenant level aviator billets are filled by maritime patrol and reconnaissance aviators. Mm -hmm. Again, it's very culturally important to the community because it gives us a broader sense. It's like for me, I told you earlier as we were talking that I had an opportunity to fly an F-14, EA-6B and a couple of S-3 hops off the aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that I learned was the importance of time and being on time. Mm -hmm. Because when you launch on a 10-hour sortie, you can always put off the next task because I've got 10 hours to get that task done. And if I take off five minutes late on a 10-hour sortie, no problem. I can make that up, right? Right. As you know well, you're five minutes late for your launch on the boat. You're in the penalty box and you missed the cycle, right? That lesson really hit home for me during my time in the aircraft carrier. And I tried to bring that some of that culture back to my squadron that I went off to command eventually of, don't be sloppy with your time because you can. There's no reason to be sloppy with your time. Right. Just be disciplined about it. Well, the few I got to know, I will say, I always thought were very quality individuals that came out to the carriers on my deployments. But of course, that didn't diminish the fun that we would have. We're all on the same team, but hey, why not take some jabs? So of course, from the carrier community's point of view, you guys had it easy because, right, you'd go to Siganella or one of these nice places and get, you know, per diem. And when you land, you might have a nice place where you can go out and get a refreshment. But when we land, we're stuck on the boat. And not only we're not getting per diem, they're actually charging us money to pay for the food on the boat. So yeah, that always provided some good natured ribbing between communities. <laughs> I would caveat that, Jello. I do agree with you. And I was the benefactor of what you just said. On the other hand, uh -huh. after 9-11, we deployed to some pretty expeditionary places where I spent a lot of time in an unair conditioned tent eating MREs. So uh, we certainly got our share of payback. Touche. Yes. People, again, talking about that. Did you ever do anything, whether it's mission-wise or maybe the folks in the tube with 
other services? Was there ever a need for the Marine Corps or the Army to be in there or the Air Force? I mean, there could be other Air Force assets. Let's talk about interoperability a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. We took riders with us all the time, particularly during Afghanistan and Iraqi operations, supporting both conventional and special operations forces. They knew precisely what the objective was on the ground. They knew who they needed to talk to to get stuff done. They just couldn't get into the battle space at an elevated nature with that big horizon. And that's what we offered them. Sometimes they'd bring their own radios. Sometimes they'd use our radios. And it really was important because I'm not inculcated in special operations, but having that person sitting next to me and I could do the airborne ISR piece and he could do the coordination with his snake eater buddies down there on the ground. Very cool. Obviously, I'm familiar with the roles available to officers. In your case, you ascended all the way up to a squadron CO and then the Commodore. How about for the enlisted? Is there plenty of upward mobility? Like with the crew, you said could be five or six enlisted. Could one of them be a senior enlisted? Yeah. And so on every crew, you always designated a senior enlisted who played that role for the crew and, you know, liaise with the mission commander of the crew. Mm -hmm. Mission commanders could be either pilots or NFOs. You know, so I would say in general, if you look at the composition of U.S. Navy P-8 squadron, there's a senior enlisted AWO, Aviation Warfare Systems Operator, typically a senior chief, sometimes a master chief, but typically a senior chief, an E-8. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, really the next big thing would be to go to be like a command master chief and elevate yourself beyond just being an aviator to being a senior enlisted leader. Gotcha. Well, Leeds, this has been exciting. I've got a handful of listener questions. First is a question from Jeff Campbell. And these are all folks, by the way, who support the show financially, which is great. Helps us to keep the lights on. So they get this perk to be able to ask you questions. Jeff wants to know, ASW has traditionally been mostly a low-level thing. Does the P-8 conduct the ASW mission at high altitude? And if so, what allows it to do so? So obviously, I'm sure there are certain things you may or may not want to disclose. Obviously, all that classified stuff that you signed when you left the Navy saying you wouldn't disclose, I don't want you to put yourself in any kind of position. But broadly speaking, the P-3 was, as I recall, pretty famous for rooting around down low. What does the P-8 do? You know, we introduced P-8s to the fleet starting in 2012. So they've been in operation with the U.S. Navy for a decade now. When we first introduced them, we trained to fly them in a similar way, not exactly the same, but similar to how we flew P-3s. And that was largely dictated not by the platform, but by the fact that we had the same buoys and the same weapons that a P-3 had. And so, for example, our torpedoes are retarded by a parachute pack. Mm -hmm. And so they need to be dropped at a low altitude. That parachute pack can't survive a high altitude drop. As far as the sonar buoys go, we subsequently now have introduced a little GPS card in the sonar buoy. So if you think like your iPhone knows where it is in the world, now a sonar buoy knows where it is in the world and can report that position back to the airplane over that radio link. We used to have to be down low in order to deploy sonar buoys accurately to maintain a constant track of a submarine. Now, when I drop a sauna buoy with a GPS card in it, I can compare the release point of that sauna buoy and the splash point of that sauna buoy and compute that drop vector algorithm, which enables more accurate placement from high altitude because I can apply the ballistics of the winds that acted upon that sauna buoy as it fell from the airplane down the surface of the ocean. Hmm. The other thing that's changing is in P-8s, and this is all public domain information, is that the U.S. Navy is right now in the process of testing what's called the High Altitude ASW Weapons Concept, or HAWK, which takes a traditional parachute-retarded torpedo and adds a JDAM 
extended range. Mm -hmm. So a JDAM ER, that's joint direct attack munition, a little wing kit to the torpedo. The torpedo falls out of the airplane at high altitude with a GPS guidance kit and the wing kit flies the torpedo to a release point at which point the wing kit separates from the torpedo, the parachute deploys, and then it enters the water as though it had been released from a low altitude. <laughs> Those two technologies, GPS sauna buoys coupled with the high altitude ASW weapons concept are enabling the P-8 to conduct operations at higher altitude. And it's not that the P-8 can't operate down low. In fact, of course. we're actually pretty surprised in the early days of transition, how great the airplane flies down low. You know, those high bypass turbofans, those CFM 56s, turned out to be a lot more fuel efficient than we thought as we were operating down at a thousand feet and below. Additionally, it's got these big soft wings, which generates a really smooth ride in the cabin for the crew. Mm -hmm. And while listen, a fundamental requirement wasn't about crew comfort, a more comfortable place performing your work leads to better performance over the course of a 10 hour mission. No doubt. And so P8 has much less noise and vibration inside due to two CFM 56 turbo fans instead of four T56 turbo props turning on the wings. <laughs> and the fact that these soft 737-900 wings provides for an environment would again, it's not about our operators being soft, it's about they perform better because they're not beaten up oh, in the way that they were in a P3. And so can a P8 operate down low? Yes. Does it do it the same as a P3? No. A P8 shows up on station about 40,000 pounds heavier than a P3 did. So it typically flies 10 to 15 knots faster initially, which means that your turning radius isn't as tight as a P3 was. However, you just mitigate that by better tactics, better planning, and better sensors. Therefore, you don't need to be yanking the airplane to 60 degrees and two Gs like we used to do in P3s. We don't do that in P8s. But the airplane flies great down low. Being up high has advantages in terms of endurance, for example. You burn less fuel sure. when you're up high so you can stay on station longer. Was it a thing to shut off an engine in the P3? Absolutely. Yeah? We routinely shut down one. That was normal. <laughs> so if you look at how a P3 is configured, four turboprops, right. actually only three generators. Engine number one, which is the port outboard engine, did not have a generator on it. So that was the one that we nominally shut down so we could maintain the same electrical power generation capacity. And then if you really needed extended endurance on station, you'd shut down number four, which is the starboard outboard engine and fly around on just engines number two and three to maintain your loiter or maximum endurance capability. And obviously the props feather in such a way that the drag is uh, not a big deal. Exactly. You were talking about ordnance and it made me realize I hadn't asked you about the pickle button, if you will. In an F-18, I'm the only one in there. Of course, I'm pushing the button. In an F-14, or even in a two-seat, I think F-18s, were they starting to be able to launch in the back? I don't remember. But I think in the Tomcat, the Rio could. Who's pushing the button? Is it the aircraft commander? Is it someone else with concurrence? How does that work? And so a P-8 in the back has six mission crew workstations, and they are exactly the same functionally, except they have what's called role-based access controls. So if I log on as a acoustic sensor operator, I don't get weapons release authority. If I log on as a tactical coordinator, then I can release a weapon. And so each of the two control yokes in the flight station have pickles, if you will, mm -hmm. to release a weapon. And the naval flight officer in the back, when he logs on as a naval flight officer, as a TACO or a NAVCOM, also has weapons release capability, as I said, with a double mouse click and a P-8. One other means of, I'll call it two-person control, if you will, 
is that master arm is exclusively up in the flight station so that the pilots can always verify, particularly for like forward firing weapons, right. that the range is clear or the firing zone is clear. So master arms is in the flight station, which means the pilot has ultimate control by his control of master arm, but weapons can be released at the pilot, co-pilot, or either of the two naval flight officer stations in the back. Okay. I don't know what made me think of this, but I want to ask you, the Navy also flies a version of the 7-3 for cargo. I guess, what is it, the C-40? Exactly. Do your two communities interact at all? Are they same but different or just what? Not really. You know, we've looked at it over time. For example, there was some thinking for a while that maybe we should buy some C-40s to use as pilot training for the P-8 force. We did leverage the expertise. First of all, let me back up. So the U.S. Navy's C-40 community is a reserve community. Okay. It has a few active duty operators in it, but for the most part, it's staffed by reservists. We did leverage their 737 qualifications, many of whom were also 737 pilots in the commercial sector. We brought them aboard to help us through that transition from a four-engine turboprop P3 to a twin turbofan P8. So we did leverage that corporate experience, or if you will. We also, for a while, talked about buying some C-40s and using them as pilot training aircraft. One of the advantages of a P-8 is because it's a commercial common 737 next-gen derivative, it's a 737-800 with 900 wings, just the same as you've experienced in your commercial aviation career, most of the training and proficiency is done in the simulator. In fact, the U.S. Navy's formula is 70% of the training in the simulator, which we bought a commercial operational flight trainer, commercial 737 simulator, forms the backbone of our P-8 simulator. And the same goes for the crew simulator in the back. We've got a weapon system trainer. We tried to move as much of the training as possible into the simulator, which saves fatigue life and ultimately results in lower total ownership costs for the fleet by not doing a lot of that training in the airplane. All right, moving on with our listener questions. Sean Jones wants to know, how often does your community actually find a sub and do they ever visually see what they are tracking? So let me take a stab at this, Leeds, because you had said you can look out there and I even had a chance to do this. But as far as how often do you actually find one, I think there's probably, right, the ocean's a big place. I flew to Hawaii the other day in my airline capacity and was reminded of when I was in the Navy looking around in my F-18, but the same thing. It's like, holy cow, that's just a big, big ocean. You kind of have to know where you're looking in the first place. So it's not just random. It's more a function of we're told to go look over here. So here we go. Is that a fair way to look at it, maybe? That's a perfect way to categorize it. Okay. How often or the frequency at which we find a submarine depends on the intelligence that cues the search and a smaller area of probability of that submarine results in a higher probability of detection or P sub D. Mm. You probably use the term P sub K for your air-to-air weapons. We use P sub D probability detection for the probability of finding a submarine over the course of a sortie. And so if we have good tight intelligence and a smaller area to search, the probability detection is much higher as opposed to the big ocean little submarine problem that you just identified flying over the coast. As far as seeing the submarine visually, you already gave your Hornet analogy out there and in the pattern around the boat. And so same for us. We talked about that visual is an effective search sensor for maritime patrol aircraft or helicopters doing airborne anti-submarine warfare. There's one other really unique or interesting phenomenon. We've played with it over time thinking it could be more predictable, but it's largely unpredictable, but that's bioluminescence. Ah. And so in some parts of the ocean, In certain seasons of the year, objects that move through the water, even a surface ship, as they create a wake, 
it triggers a reaction by this like phytoplankton that makes the water literally light up at night. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, submarines have been found even to include fully submerged submarines by a bioluminescent trail that was disturbed wow. as they went through the water. And again, there was actually a lot of research that went into it trying to make it predictable, categorical. It's really unpredictable. And you don't use it as a primary search sensor, but when you see it for the first time at night, you're like, wow, that is really cool. <laughs> That's a bonus, I'm guessing. Yeah. We also use P sub D in the Hornet community, but it would be for probability of destruction when we're weaponeering. Again, not sure what made me wonder this, but you said something about helicopters. Are helicopters part of quote unquote maritime patrol? Not part of maritime patrol, but part of what we call the air anti-submarine warfare, air ASW community. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, those helicopters, MH-60 Romeos with a dipping sonar are highly effective ASW platforms. What they lack that a P-8 brings is the range and endurance and the capacity to search large areas of ocean. But once a submarine has been detected and you put a Romeo or two Romeos better yet on top of a submarine, it is hard for that submarine to escape that. And P-8s and Romeos working together is an awesome combination. We've got Link 16. So a P-8 locates a submarine and the Romeo can see exactly where the submarine is. So the Romeo comes in down low, the P-8 gets out of the way and watches the Romeo do its thing. And it's a pleasure to watch. They're really an effective ASW platform. All right, here's a fun one. John Clark asks, what was the most surprising place you or your squadrons found a submarine? I really don't have a great anecdote to respond to that, Jello. No problem. It reminds me, and I probably shouldn't say, you know, what's the strangest place you've had sex? Oh, that would be, I'm not going to answer that one because it's pretty bad, but it's a funny one. I guess the point is they meant location and the answer was something else. Moving on, Neil Phillips, the ocean is a big place. How do you even know where to start looking for subs? Parentheses, guessing there must be some additional intel involved. I think we pretty much just covered this one for Neil. Yeah. And so what I would say is, I mean, of course, the means of intelligence of searching for submarines are quickly delves into classified realm. But I would say in general, the first thing that cues you to go look for a submarine is the fact that it's missing from port, right? There's a number of ways to figure out that it's missing from port, like, you know, a person standing there on the pier, basically. You can think of the ASW cycle in terms of three Fs, find, fix, finish. And the find phase is clearly the hardest phase. Mm. Once you've found a submarine, as long as you can maintain a constant track on them, the ASW problem is relatively simple. But the problem is finding them because of that big ocean, little submarine theory. And so there's a variety of means that you can survey the ocean for submarines. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for a maritime patrol aircraft, it comes out to the quality of intelligence, as in the area of probability, there's an inverse relationship with probability of detection. Higher quality intelligence, smaller area of probability, higher probability detection for the crew that goes out to look for it. All right. Jake Clark wants to know, what are some differences between the P-8 and the regular 737 Next Gen? He lists here cockpit systems, avionics. Obviously, the military has certain requirements for things to be reliable a certain way, maybe even protecting from battle damage or EMP. I don't know, but I don't know. What do you think of Jake's question here? Yeah, I think it's a great question, actually. One of the U.S. Navy's design tenets for P-8 was to maintain as much commercial commonality with the 737 Next Gen as possible because that enables you to leverage the global footprint of the more than 4,000 737 Next Gens that are in service around the globe. Mm -hmm. That was always forefront. And so that resulted in an airplane. Today, a P-8 is 86% common with a 737-800, which again, brings the economies of scale into play, which reduces costs. And you've already got 
footprint all around the globe, whether it's support equipment, supply chains, et cetera. The P8 is, as I've said, a 737-800 with 900 wings. We added the bigger wings to give it more payload. And we also needed to strengthen those wings to put four weapons hard points on them. And those hard points are strengthened. For example, each of those hard points can carry a LORASM, a long-range anti-ship missile, which the U.S. Navy is in the process of integrating right now. Each LORASM weighs 2,500 pounds. So you can imagine the engineering feat required to build an airplane that can carry four of those Mm -hmm. at the same time on the wings. To generate electrical power, your standard 737 Next Gen has two 90-kilovolt amp generators on those CFM-56 engines. We worked with CFM to increase that to, we doubled it. We've got a 180 kilovolt amp generator on each motor to generate all that electrical power for the mission systems. We've talked about 11 weapons points. There's a bomb bay or a weapons bay that has five internal or interior hard points, four on the wings, and then there's two more hard points on chin stations underneath the fuselage. So 11 hard points capable of carrying more than 20,000 pounds of weapons to differentiate it from a 737 next gen. You know, in the cockpit, we maintained most of the best of breed 737 safety features. You've got the same flight management system as a 737 next gen. You've got TCAS, uh, traffic collision avoidance system, a ground proximity warning system, a heads up display in the left seat. We took the one out of the right seat, but a heads up display in the left seat. All those features combined to make the airplane incredibly safe and easy to learn to operate. And, you know, I'm going to knock on proverbial wood here. The U.S. Navy is a decade into operating P-8s and has not yet had a mishap, nor have any P-8 customers, of which we've got 150 in service around the globe right now. Again, leveraging all those safety features that have been developed over decades through the 737 fleet, carried them forward into P-8. And then, of course, in the cockpit, we had to add the military functionality. So weapons control panels, aircraft survivability controls for the chaff and flare system, uh, secure radios a tactical display panel that gives them the Link 16 display, for example, Mm -hmm. and controls for air-to-air refueling. A P-8 can refuel in flight using the U.S. Boom system, not the U.S. Navy's probe drogue system. There's six mission crew stations in the back. You talked about survivability enhancements. We've got onboard inert gas generating system. If you remember earlier in the conversation, I said we put explosive suppressant foam in the tanks of P3s in case you took a small arms round through. You know, it's the vapor in the fuel tank that explodes, not the fuel. And so in P3s, we displace that vapor with foam. In P8s, we displace it with inert gas, onboard inert gas generating system. We put in a dry bay fire suppression system. So if you think about the lower lobe of the airplane, which would be the cargo hold in a 737 next gen, Mm -hmm. we put in a fire extinguishing system within that. So if the airplane was hit by small arms fire, it could suppress that fire and survive that mission, essentially. Of course, one of the things we maintained was the chemical flush laboratory, because as we've talked about earlier, over the course of a 10-hour mission, I mean, human nature is human nature. 10 hours, that's unrefueled. If you add air-to-air refueling, it can extend well beyond that as well. I'm sure. Just to be clear, though, I mean, most P8s that I've seen photographs of are painted bright white. You guys aren't like looking to be <laughs> dodging bullets, yeah? Yeah, it's a light form of gray. It's not okay. white. If you look at P3s in the Cold War era, they were white above and dark blue below, which is an interesting paint scheme of how they turned out that way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we went to a tactical gray paint scheme in the 1990s and 2000s. And the P8 is a shade of gray. Okay. And every customer is elected to continue using that shade of gray. It's not white. 
You keep saying other customers. Who else is uh, operating the P8? I think Australia, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So eight customers are on contract for 183 airplanes. The U.S. Navy was, of course, the launch customer. India was the second customer to commit. Oh, wow. India has 12 P8s. Australia has 12 P8s with two more on contract that we'll deliver coming up in the near future. Next up was the United Kingdom. We've delivered all nine to them. I think that they need more than that. We'll be delivering six to South Korea soon, five to Germany. We've delivered five to Norway, and we'll start delivering four to New Zealand later on this year with interest from more countries as well. And I probably should have saved that question for the end because that sounds like what you're doing in your current capacity. So let's keep going. But that big list a moment ago that you rattled off about all the improvements of the P8 probably answers Michael Dukak's question, which is, wouldn't it have been better to build a modernized slash improved P3 than to invest a lot of money designing a completely new aircraft? Sounds to me like the answer to that is no. It's a great question. Lockheed proposed exactly what Michael is proposing here. Lockheed proposed Orion 21 as its offer for the U.S. Navy's multi-mission aircraft or MMA program back in 2002. The winner was selected in 2004. The U.S. Navy went with Boeing's 737-based P-8 offering over Lockheed's Orion 21 offering. And the Orion 21 was essentially a modernized version of the P-3, just as Michael alludes to. It was going to have electrically controlled propellers instead of the hydro-mechanically controlled pitch propellers okay. on a P-3 that are, have become so problematic over time to maintain. And they're, frankly, a readiness to greater. But the root of that question really talks about life cycle costs. And so had the Navy gone down the path of an Orion 21 and the original U.S. Navy requirements for like 137, I can't remember the exact number. So the U.S. Navy buys 137 foreign customers, allied partners buy another 50 to 60 airplanes, and that becomes your supply base for the life cycle of a platform. Whereas going down the path of a 737 next gen, as we just talked about, over the life cycle of the platform, you're going to be able to leverage the economies of scale, the savings, if you will, from a supply base of 4,000 737 next gens that were in service around the globe at the time that the airplane was selected. Now that continues to change over to max. 737 MAX mm-hmm. as next gens are being replaced in service. But having said that, there's still commercial commonality with the MAX as well. And so the U.S. Navy elected for, I believe, the better business case for life cycle sustainment costs. It's a fact that the U.S. Navy invested $7 billion of research and development to get from a 737-800 to a P-8. But then that's going to pay off over the life cycle of the platform by those commercial common economies of scale. Sounds like it. Jim Gundog, which I don't think is his real name, but that's what we have on the profile on Patreon, wants to know, this is a fun one, when on deployment, what were some of the more unique items you brought along to make things easier to be away from home? My father spent 10 plus years in P3s and EP3s, and they used to bring bikes, golf clubs, stereo systems. Occasionally, they would fly to a spot that had McDonald's or Burger King and order 100 burgers so everyone could have one. Before you answer that leads, on a carrier, if we could get to, if it wasn't too far from our home base, if we could get to the carrier pier side, we would bring up carpets and stereos and bikes and golf clubs and make our staterooms a little more homey. But you said your second flight you deployed. What did you guys used to take with you? Same thing. And obviously it's changed significantly over time with the advent of the internet and digital gaming and all that. Just the same as a change for you aboard the aircraft carrier as well. I mean, he's right that there is a long history of bringing those recreational items on deployment to make your time more enjoyable. I actually prefer to talk about what I brought home from deployment as you just alluded to with carpets. 
Obviously, it's a big airplane, whether P3 or P8, lots of interior capacity. And I like to think fondly back on the various runs that we performed over time, whether it was the lobster run up to Brunswick <laughs> or the rum run to Puerto Rico or the beer runs from Germany or the sake runs from Japan, where an airplane, the customs agent would come aboard and their eyes would be overwhelmed with the amount that they were going to have to count uh, stashed away aboard the airplane. Oh, dear. Well, to be clear, for anyone who might be concerned, these were also training missions or operational. We weren't just out running around buying the stuff. We were doing it with in conjunction with something else legitimate, shall I say? Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> All right. Joe Kunzler wants to know, how do you defend yourself from fighters? My guess is you try to avoid them by distance. You nailed it, Jello. And the simple answer to Joe's question is not very well. Mm. At least if you think about it in a 1v1 sense, it's a vexing problem for a big, large, slow airplane. An obvious tactic that's been developed over time is have a cap, the high value asset combat air patrol, where you have a fighter or a section of fighters assigned to protect a big airplane, whether it's a P-8 or a tanker or a airborne early warning airplane or whatever the case may be. But, you know, on any day in the Navy, when you're out there tooling around the AOR, you likely don't have the luxury of have a cap. We do have a few strengths that can help us in this realm to mitigate our weakness. Our first strength is situational awareness in a P-8. You know, if you've got friendly aircraft out there, particularly fighters or an E-2 Hawkeye or an AWACS, by virtue of modern data links like Link 16, we've got the same picture that they've got. And so we've got the same situational awareness on enemy air threats that they've got. And as you mentioned, Jello. At this point, it's like a predator-prey relationship. Yeah. It's like that wildebeest grazing in the savanna who sees a cheetah out of the corner of his eye. He's like, oh, there's a cheetah over there. And the cheetah's crouching closer. And at some point, the wildebeest has to make the runaway decision. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same calculus for us. P8s can run away at just short of 500 knots, push the nose over. A fighter can do three times that. Just not for very long, right? And oh, by the way, right, if you right. think about in a maritime context where he's running away from his base, he's got to ensure he's got enough gas to get back to base. Yeah. So in the big picture, you know, 1v1 in confined airspace, P8 loses every time. There's just no way around it. I'll say just a couple other things, though. So as we said, you know, runaway is tactic number one. If we do find ourselves in the end game, we do have flares to defeat infrared guided air-to-air -air missiles. You know, public domain information, the U.S. Navy has also announced that it's testing a towed radar decoy from P-8s, which is the exact same ALE-55 that Super Hornets use to increase their survivability against radar-guided missiles. Those two things could protect against infrared or radar-guided missiles in the end game. The last thing I would say is run away down low on the deck. Yeah, Fighter performance, fighter fuel consumption increases significantly. So it's essentially put the fighter on your tail, push yeah. your nose over, head for the deck, and hope he can't catch up to you with guns. Yeah, the weapon engagement zone shrinks as you descend in altitude. I think the assumption here, and I'm not trying to say it was a bad answer, apologize for this, but the assumption here was if we know there's an enemy and we know they're hostile, right? In other words, hey, we're going to avoid them. We're going to have fighters to help us. We're going to turn and run when we hear they're coming, like your cheetah analogy. Maybe, and you tell me, maybe the more scary is the fighter that shows up on your wing in international waters and then starts getting aggressive, right? Getting in front of you and deploying expendables that are hitting your airplane, or maybe that's the day where, oh, look, here's a flanker or a fulcrum or something on our wing. And bummer, now they've got permission to fire for one crazy reason or another that they can make a movie out of. And at that point, sorry to make it obvious of it, right? There's not much you can do about that. You're counting on the deterrent effect of a 
strong response from the United States of America. Yeah. During the Cold War, it happened frequently. There were super connies and P-2s shot down doing reconnaissance operations, shot down by Soviet aircraft. Such was the state of the Cold War that there wasn't a significant response. As an air crewman, all you can do out there is behave professionally and just count on the hammer of the United States of America, keeping behavior like that in check. Let's hope that's enough. All right. The last listener question I have is from Richard Dropkin, who's a relatively new supporter. This question was kind of perplexing to me because if you have these, I didn't know about them. How often were nuclear depth bombs carried in the P-3 and what was the level of detection required for dropping one of those compared to, say, a Mark 46? Jello, I'm sorry to say that I actually can't answer this question because I don't have any experience with this. We had nuclear depth bombs in the inventory and crews trained to employ them, but they were taken out of the inventory before I joined the force in 1993. And I just don't have any knowledge or experience with which to answer that question. No, that's okay. Because we've been at this for coming up on two hours now anyway, Lead. So I'm definitely going to owe you. Let's begin to wrap up. So the P-8 is relatively new. I want to ask you about the future of maritime patrol. I suppose the P-8 will be around a long time. The P-3, like you said, 60 years. But sometimes when they introduce a new aircraft, they're already thinking about the next one. And also, just to uh, throw this out there, I think it was on DARPA or somewhere else. I saw this great big artist rendition of getting back to our other theme, full circle, of some sort of dirigible or blimp coming back with U.S. Navy on the side of it. So what's the future for maritime patrol? You know, Jello, some observers have said the F-35 is going to be the last man fighter. Yeah. Some people say the same about maritime patrol aircraft. I actually don't see either of those challenges that way. There is no doubt that unmanned platforms have tremendous utility in a variety of mission sets. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there is only so much capacity in the sky in the form of RF bandwidth. Today, in order to employ lethal effects, we think of having a man in the loop, whether or not that person is in the platform or controlling the platform from a ground control station on a ship, on shore, wherever the case may be. It's hard to think about artificial intelligence breaking through to the point where we substitute that for the human judgment of having an operator in the loop. Back to this bandwidth question. Look what's going on in the commercial communications realm right now. Different technologies like your 5G cell phone is fighting for some of the same spectrum that civil aviation uses, right? Mm -hmm. And there's only so much bandwidth out there to have all these command and control links to unmanned systems. And therein lies the beauty of a manned platform. It takes off with resident judgment contained in it. And over the course of the mission, it can make decisions about the shape of that mission and whether or not to employ effects, lethal effects, non-lethal effects, whatever the case is, by the judgment within that platform, be it fighter, maritime patrol aircraft, whatever. It's hard to think about doing that in a large conflict scenario where you've got 3,000 sorties a day of unmanned aircraft. There's not enough spectrum to control all that. Yeah. Today, artificial intelligence is being used to make decisions about non-lethal effects. So we do. For example, surveillance and reconnaissance with artificially intelligent platforms. But when you move into lethality, that's really a whole different realm. And I believe P3s serve for 60 years. P8s, I'm thinking, are probably going to serve for on the order of that. And I would think, while certainly there will continue to be a big push towards unmanned with like the U.S. Navy's MQ-4 Triton program, mm -hmm. which has tremendous utility. It also has tremendous capacity limitations when you think about filling the sky with platforms that need a tether, a communication link back to an intelligent human operator that has to be in the loop 
to make decisions about the lethal employment of force. And I forward it over to you for your view on that. I think we could spend a lot of time on that, but in the interest of uh, wrapping up our maritime patrol today, although certainly, right, they're talking about that ever-present surface picture by launching, like you said, for the carrier, some, in a sense, maritime patrol. So yeah, I think there's a, a future for that. So in your capacity, though, at Boeing, you were just able to rattle off how many and who is getting all these. So I assume you're pretty well dialed in, and I hope there's a market for the company and for you. But what's the future there? I mean, are they already looking at engine upgrades or other upgrades? I mean, I'm sure there's always going to be incremental improvements to this platform, I would think. Yeah, certainly there's system improvements right. internal to P8. The program was born with a spiral development vision. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're on the verge of completing increment two right now and just starting testing on increment three. And, and as the platform goes on over time, obviously there'll be future capability increments, just like you saw, yeah. you know, in your career as a Hornet pilot. But the P-8 for the near term is the future for Boeing for maritime patrol aviation. Okay. How about the future for you? You seem pretty happy over there. And we uh, assigned you a book writing assignment earlier in this. So uh, I'm sure you'll be keeping busy with that. But otherwise, how's retired life treating you? Better than I deserve is what I tell Ah. people, Jello. I mean, you know, in some ways I had the opportunity to serve in the same way that I did when I was in uniform. We didn't talk about a career, a full career path, if you will, but Mm -hmm. One of my jobs after I was a squadron commander was back on the Navy staff in OPNAV in the Air Warfare Division, where I was the requirements officer for P-8s. And so back in 2011, 2012, I was selling the story of P-8 internal to the Navy, the U.S. Navy, to ensure enough funding was allocated through the budget process to succeed in the U.S. Navy's transition. And I just get to continue that now in my current job with Boeing, just now with U.S. Navy as a customer, but with other international customers tell them the story about the benefits that P8 offers and the opportunity that will be lost if they don't acquire P8, the opportunity of interoperability. So, you know, one of the strengths of the P3 community was more than 700 built throughout history, operated by allies around the globe. And more than once, I ducked into a base with like, say, a cracked windshield and barred a windshield from an ally, which got us back on our way on to complete the mission. And we're trying to create that same community with P8 operators with both tactical and logistical or supply chain interoperability. Well, that's probably as good a way to wrap up as I can think of their leads. The last question, as always, though, is about a call sign. Sean Leadman leads. I don't know. There might be more to this, but I think it's just a play on the name, it sounds like. It is the most boring story ever. <laughs> kind of like growing up in a small town in corn country, Minnesota, Jello. <laughs> All right. But what did you want to be? I'm sure you wanted to be like assassin, right? That's always one of my favorites. Jaws. Come on. Something good? No? (laughs) I'm a Minnesotan at heart. Maybe Loon. Loon? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome leads. Well, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate you schooling me on all things Maritime Patrol. I really enjoyed learning all about it and, and getting to know you better. So thanks for taking the time and thanks for your expertise and sharing it today on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Jello. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.